different things that have gone on personally in my life and in the life of the church. But praise God for his grace in sustaining this particular place on top of the hill for so many years. And uh, I'm just encouraged as we look out and we, we get that good report from Bob and Toby of the missionaries that we've sent out from here and just the, the amount of work that they've done over the years. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little later. It's, it's, it's kind of ironic that as I was preparing this message, I have a note in my, my notes here, uh, talk about Bob and Noby's mission, you know. And I didn't know that the, uh, they were going to play the video. So you see how God kind of works that together. But several weeks ago, uh, Steve was supposed to go to uh, Philadelphia to kind of winterize the home there. Uh, and, but unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, we had all this uh, technology to take care of. And Steve decided to, you know, it's more important for him to stay. But I had prepared a message or was going to prepare a message for that time when he was away. So when he didn't go away, I still was preparing. Uh, and so I went and approached Steve and I said, would it be okay if I still taught? He said, well, sure, I don't care. And as we're going through the book of John, it just dawned on me, I didn't know enough about John the Baptist. I mean, I, I know generally, I think most of us know a lot of general things about him. But as I looked further and further, I was learning things that I didn't know. And if, you know, I needed to look at that personally, then great. But I think as I stand here this morning to bring the message, I think everybody's going to benefit from this. Um, and it's amazing because I only looked at one verse, and the verse there is on the top of your uh, uh, print or top of your uh, outline. And that verse is just verse 6. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. Three phrases. That's all. But there's going to be a lot of other things involved in those three, three phrases. But I just want to thank you uh, again from, from my heart of the generosity and, um, that you uh, bestowed upon Steve and I and, and just how gracious uh, you are. Uh, to do that for us. We appreciate that. In 1934, a young man named William Franklin Graham responded to the gospel under the preaching of Mordecai Ham, who was a traveling evangelist. Five years later, in 1939, he was ordained by a Southern Baptist church. His first crusade was held in the Civic Auditorium in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and was attended by over 6,000 people. In 1947, at the age of 30, he became the president of Northwest Bible College, which at the time made him the youngest person to serve as a college or university president. In 1949, his Los Angeles crusade was launched and launched him into national prom prominence because it was attended by so many prominent people and Hollywood stars. A five-week week planned crusade lasted eight weeks. In 1957, he held a crusade in New York's Madison Square Garden, which ran nightly for four months. In 1991, 250,000 people attended his crusade in New York City's Central Park, which was one of the largest at that time in North America. It has been estimated that 2.2 billion people have heard him preach over the years. And an estimated 215 million people have heard him preach the gospel at live events. An estimated 2.2 million people at his crusades have responded to make a commitment for the gospel. He has preached in over 185 countries. His radio program lasted over 60 years. He has met with 13 different pre presidents starting from Harry Truman 
all the way up until Donald Trump. His last official crusade was in New York City in 2005. There have been many more before him and many since. Great preachers like Charles Spurgeon, who at the time of his death in 19, or 1892 had preached nearly 3,600 sermons and published 49 volumes of commentaries, illustrations, and devotions. During his lifetime, Spurgeon is estimated to have preached to 10 million people. He had preached over 600 times before the age of 20. He once addressed an audience of over 23,000 people without a microphone or any mechanical amplification at all. In 1865, Spurgeon, Spurgeon's sermons sold 25,000 copies every week and were translated into more than 20 languages. He spent 20 years studying the book of Psalms and writing his commentary on them as we now know them as the treasury of David. I have a copy at home. Other great evangelists include Charles Finney, Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, John MacArthur, and others. They all had a call to prepare the way for the presentation of the gospel. These were just mere men empowered by the Holy Spirit proclaiming the good news of salvation found only in Jesus the Messiah. John the Apostle wants us to know that his voice of John the Baptist of the one crying in the wilderness was the wilderness of blind eyes, the wilderness of deaf ears, and the wilderness of hardened hearts of which we find ourselves today. This is true because of the nature of sinful mankind. His gospel focuses on the divine nature of the one coming in comparison to the one who is proclaiming. John the Baptist was just a mere man, but a man chosen by God, sent and chosen by God on a mission, and was given his chosen name. On this, we'll be looking at him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, for illuminating your word through the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who haven't put their trust and faith in you, Lord, would you stir their hearts this morning? By the power of your spirit, would you draw them to yourself? Not my words, Lord, but your word that's preached. So I thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We're going to use this as a kickoff point. Luke chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of Enturia, and Traconitus, and Licinius, tetriarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Sapphira and Cephas, the word of God came to the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Although his name implies that he baptized people, which he did, John's life on earth was more than just baptizing people. John's adult life was characterized by a commitment, a devotion, and his surrender to Jesus Christ and his kingdom mission. John's voice was a lone voice crying in the wilderness as he proclaimed the coming of the Messiah to people who desperately needed a savior as we do today. 
He was the precursor for the modern-day evangelists as he unashamedly shared the good news of Jesus Christ. He was a man filled with faith and a role model to those of us who are commanded to share our faith with others. However, in order to get a real insight to this historic figure, we should start from the beginning. It's always good to go back and uncover where a person origins from and see how God's plan, his purpose, and the prophecies were fulfilled. We need to go back 700 years from this point to the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, starting in verse 1 through 5, which is quoted in just what I read. Then moving forward, we read from the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi 3, in verse 1. Most everyone, whether they are a believer or not, have heard of John the Baptist in some way, shape, or form. He is one of the most significant and recognized figures in the Bible. While John was known as a Baptist, or the Baptist, not a Baptist, he was in fact the first prophet called by God since Malachi some 400 years earlier and was foretold over 700 years before that, as I said in the book of Isaiah. He is a voice of one calling in the desert, preparing the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40. This passage prophesied God's master plan in action as God selected John to be his special ambassador to proclaim the coming of his son. That was the prophecy foretold even before his birth and even before the birth of his mother and father. Let's look at our verse for this morning once again, verse 6 in chapter 1. There was a man sent by God, his name was John. Three separate distinctions in one powerful verse. So first, let's take a look at the first one. There was a man. John was a chosen man of God. Some say there was a man. Some say there came a man. We need to start at the beginning of who, how, and why this man came into being. The miraculous way he was filled with the Spirit and the only purpose he was given. There are several unique qualities and characteristics or titles described about his life. The Gospel of John never refers to him as John the Baptist, but the other three Gospels do. Although he did baptize, the Apostle John focuses on his mission more than his method. In the start of this verse, there came a man. This verse is intentional, and it's meant to separate his humanity, John, from the divine one who he is going to proclaim, to serve as a witness and a herald of the coming Messiah, a man with a specific message and a purposed mission. The most important message of any of us need to hear and any of us need to proclaim. John 1, 19 through 23 says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now I want you to notice there's three things within this verse. He says, I am not the Christ. Then he says, I am not. And then the final one is, no. I mean, he wanted to make very, very sure that there was no confusion about who he was. 
The most words, I am not the Christ, wanted to make real sure that people did not confuse him with the Messiah. Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 7, 11 verses 7 through 11, really cements this man as being set apart from before he was born. And I read, starting in verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, he is more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But I don't want to get ahead of myself as we need to start at the beginning. And even before he was conceived. Turn to Luke 1 and we will highlight some of the important verses concerning how it all began. And I'm not going to read individual verses right at the moment. I just want you to be there as I go through in a cursory way about some of the things about John. First of all, John's birth was as miraculous as Isaac. He was born of elderly parents who had never been able to have children. The angel Gabriel announced to Zechariah's father, a Levitical priest, that he would have a son. News that Zechariah received with deep skepticism. It says, however Gabriel said to this about his son, he said, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people to Israel to the Lord their God. And he, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Within that context, there are five distinctive facts that I just want to point out about this man. First of all, we already said this man would be born of parents that had never had any children before. They were both advanced in their ages. But that does not stop God's plan. Secondly, this man would be filled with the Spirit even before he was born. Third, this man would have the power of Elijah. Fourth, this man would be related to the Son of God. And fifth, this man would be described as one of the greatest born of a woman. In verses 15 through 17 in Luke 1, true to the word of the Lord, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth gave birth to John. And at the circumcision ceremony, Zechariah said about his son, son, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. John was related to Jesus as their mothers were relatives. And we see that in Luke 1.36. In fact, when Gabriel told Mary that she would give birth to Jesus, he also told her about John. And when Mary was carrying Jesus in her womb, she visited Elizabeth, and we know this, that John leapt in his mother's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. John was also a Nazarite. There's only three Nazarites recorded in the scripture. Samuel, Samson, and here is John. A Nazarite's vow are taken by the individuals who have voluntarily dedicated themselves to God. The vow is a decision and an action and desire on the part of the people who desire that to yield themselves completely and fully to God. By definition, the Hebrew word nazir simply means to be separated or consecrated. And all the vows for the Nazarites appear in Numbers 6, verses 1 through 21. Here are a few requirements and restrictions to become a Nazarite. He consecrates himself to God. They could not touch a dead body. They could not drink wine or eat grapes and anything that comes from the vine. 
they could not cut their hair. He was also a priest, as his father was, Zechariah. As an adult, John lived a rugged life in the mountainous area of Judea, between the city of Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. He wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, which is a typical attire of some prophets. After looking at that video and seeing what they ate, I was reading this, John's diet was locusts and wild honey. What I saw there, I thought, that's not bad, locusts and wild honey. He lived a solitary, simple life as he focused on the kingdom work set before him. And as I said before, he was never referred to John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. His sole purpose was to be the witness for Christ, to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah, to set the stage, so to speak, to lay the foundation for the coming Lord. He was a man, but he was no ordinary man. He was different in sight, he was different in speech, and he was different in spirit. Apart from Christ, John the Baptist is probably one of the most theologically significant figures in the Gospels, as he was the case with Christ at his birth. And it's meticulously recorded in Luke chapter 1. His entrance into the world was marked by an angelic proclamation and divine intention. John's birth not only parallels that of Jesus, but echoes the historical occasion of the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. John is clearly a pivotal figure in the salvational history of God. His ministry grew in popularity as recorded in Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. To be baptized by John was to admit your sin and repent of it, which was, of course, a great way to prepare for the Savior's coming. However, the repentance associated with John's baptism also kept the self-righteous out of the water as they did not see themselves as sinners. For the self-righteous, John had stern words calling them a brood of vipers and warning them not to rely on their Jewish lineage for salvation, but to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. People of that day simply did not address leaders religious or otherwise in this manner for fear of punishment. But John's faith made him fearless in the face of opposition. He was a man preparing the way that would follow. This type of preparation is like when a king was announced to come to visit a local province that the townspeople would get together and they would go out and remove rocks from the roadway, smooth it out, clear away brush, to make sure that when the king's entourage came, the road was smooth. If the road was smooth, the king's visit would be smooth. But if the road was bumpy, so would the visit be. When the king arrived, he would judge the town by the way he entered. If it was smooth, he visited. his visit would be pleasant. But if not, it would be bumpy. The road that John was paving would lead to the God of salvation. His message would be clear, it would be direct, and it would be unapologetic. And as he sums it up later in in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, verses 30 through 35, he says, this is John the Baptist talking, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So first we have, there was a man. 
Secondly, we have a chosen mission. And like I said, I have a note here, the story of Bob and Noby, and their over 50 years of ministry. When they went to New Guinea, to that particular place, there, there was no believers, obviously. They went into a, a tribe that was probably not very welcoming. But they felt God had sent them to this place. So they stuck it out. And now we see the fruit of what has transpired over those 50 plus years. We have saved souls in that particular area. We have churches started. We have men teaching men. We have women teaching each other. We have children learning. Why? Because they felt a chosen mission on their life. God sent them. They had the call, but God sent them. The gener general opinion about John the Baptist was that he was a prophet of God. Not the prophet, but a prophet. Matthew 14, 5. And many people may have thought that he was the Messiah. But this was not or never would be his intent, as he had a clear vision for what he was called to do. This word sent, apostello, from where we get the name apostle, the sent one, is a clear indication that John came with the power and authority selected and commissioned by God for a specific purpose. This word is in the perfect tense, meaning that this is a constant and continuous part of not only his mission, but of his life. Later in verse 33, he himself testifies that he was sent. Same word. And again in John 3, 28, the same word sent is used. In Acts 26, 17, Christ commissioned Saul when he said, Ego apostello. I apostle you, Saul. He was called out of the world to be sent to the world to proclaim the gospel of salvation. John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. 7.29, I know him for I come from him and he sent me. 8.42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I come not of my own accord, but he who sent me. In, verse, in chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. As we go back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And as with John the Baptist, we too are being sent. We too have been commissioned by God. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples into all the nations. Each one of us who call upon the name of Christ, who are believers and followers, are sent ones. You know, just because Bob and Noby are missionaries doesn't mean we are not missionaries. We are missionaries. We're missionaries at our job. We're missionaries at the grocery store. Missionaries in our neighborhoods. We are sent by God. Why? Because he's put a seal on us to proclaim the gospel. Romans 10, very familiar verse, set of verses here. 10, 14, and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. John's purpose was to be the forerunner to the Messiah, to make the announcement of the coming king, to pave the way so that there would not be any confusion when Christ arrived on the scene. He has been, for all intents and purposes, commissioned by God to be last of the Old Testament prophets, bridging the gap between the old and the new, 
completing God's plan. As I said, he belongs to God. He's been commissioned by God. And he's been given power and authority to fulfill the plan of God. And this power comes from the gospel, Romans 1.16. We all know, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also the Greek. How many of you realize that you have dynamite in your pocket? How many of you realize how powerful that is? I know many times, and I know Michael talks to many people that are outside these four walls. But when you go and you understand that you have that dynamite in your pocket, and trust God, it's amazing what can be accomplished in that obedience when you're sharing with somebody. John was sent to preach repentance and to prepare the way. In verse 4, in Mark, or 4 and 5, Mark says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John came, that is, that he might stir or rouse the people to repentance and prepare them by an outward cleansing of their body to receive the cleansing of their souls through the baptism of Christ in the Spirit, which would follow. So that the baptism of John was the profession of their repentance, but not the forgiveness of their sin, for Christ had not yet been crucified and died and buried and risen. Those were baptized with the baptism, confessing their sins, and therefore making the first step towards the mercy and grace of God who was coming, who John was preparing. Christ's baptism was therefore the perfection and consummation of John's baptism. In Luke 1, 16 through 17, it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and will go therefore before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Repentance is a change of mind, but the full biblical understanding of repentance goes much further than that. In relationship to salvation, repentance is a change of mind from an embrace and acceptance of sin to a rejection and conviction of that sin. And from the rejection of Christ to the faithful acceptance and commitment to Christ. Repentance is something only God can do in a person's life. And true biblical repentance will always result in a change of behavior. Now it may not be instantaneous, but inevitably it should be progressive. Repentance is not a work turn salvation. No one can repent and come to God unless God draws them. And repentance is only possible because of his grace, God's grace. No one can, grant, no one can repent unless God grants that repentance. And all salvation, including repentance and faith, is a result of God drawing us, opening our eyes, and changing our hearts. This is what John is preparing the way for. The outward sign of an inward change was a real commitment. However, this particular baptism, outward sign, was incomplete. As I said, there was no forgiveness for that sin at that time. We can repent intellectually. We can repent philosophically. We can change our ways of living from the outside in. We can make changes that look like we're repentant. But if there is no true repentance in our hearts, then you're fooling yourself. How many people have we run into when they make professions of faith six months, a year, two years, five years later, they're totally 
gone. And you think, wait a minute, that person said they repented. God's the one who can judge that, but what we see outwardly is evidence that may, that may not be true. So we need to be very careful of that. John the Baptist was given a mission, and we share that same mission of calling people to that repentance. We have commissioned, been commissioned like John to be sent into the world, no matter how big or small that world is. It doesn't matter. We as followers of Christ also have been apostello, sent. His mission, mission and message was solely for the purpose of preparation, to pave the way for the coming Messiah, and once that happened, he would fade away from the scene, as he was most willing to do. His work had been accomplished, his mission had been fulfilled, and his message would be realized. So the first part, we have a chosen man preparing the way. Secondly, we have a chosen mission proclaiming the message. And finally, we get to the chosen name planned by God's grace. Now we have to go back and look a little closer at Luke chapter 1 and start from the beginning. And Luke, as we know, was a doctor. Luke was meticulous in recording the events. And from the very beginning of John's life, even before he was conceived, we start reading. In verses 5 through 7, we see the beginning of God's sovereign plan taking place. His father, Zechariah, was a priest from the line of Aaron, as well as his mother, Elizabeth. They both were considered righteous before the Lord, holding to the scriptures. His mother, unfortunately, was barren, and they both were beyond childbearing years. However, we have an angelic visitation. Zechariah was chosen to enter the table, uh, enter, enter the temple to burn incense, which was separated from all the others. And the angel appeared to him. Now this is just not an ordinary angel. This is Gabriel, who came from where? From the very presence of God. This will be the same angel that will appear some months later to Mary. Elizabeth's cousin, to make another announcement that would be supernatural and would change the world forever. So first we have this angelic visitation. The particular message of this great messenger of God troubled Zechariah. Why? Because the message was that his wife would be, him and his wife would become parents. Although he didn't laugh like Sarah in Genesis, he still was doubtful. And the angel was also very specific in making sure that his son, this name would be given to him because it came from God's presence. Secondly, what are the doubtful consequences? Unfortunately, there was a consequence to his disbelief. He would be unable to speak until the day his son would be circumcised, as was the custom on the eighth day, and then given his name. As Zechariah came out of the temple, unable to speak, those around him knew that he had seen a vision. Then we have the miraculous conception. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the same messenger from God's holy presence visited her cousin Mary, as I said. However, this conception would not be natural or normal. It would be ordained supernaturally by God. We have the relational connection between John and Jesus. The angel of the Lord reveals to Mary that her cousin, Elizabeth, has also conceived, even in her advanced years. Verse 37 says, For the word of the Lord will never fail. That's reassuring. How many of us have been through hard times when all we have to do is cling on the promises in God's word? I know I've been there. When I have nowhere else to go, I don't know how people do it on their own, I look for God's promises because I, I want to be reassured. God has already spoken. But in my doubtful mind, I want to take that truth and embed it because I know it's true, because I know it's a promise, and I know it will minister. And you, if you've never gone through that, 
I encourage you, if you're ever going through hard times, look for God's promises. So we have the designated name. On the eighth day, as was the custom, they usually named the child after the father. But in this case, Zechariah was given specific revelation. And I don't think he forgot that because he couldn't speak for nine months. Right? I think he was reminded every day when he wanted to say something that he couldn't. And I'm sure, you know, his wife trying to get something out of him, he had to write things down. So all of a sudden, he became a prolific writer because he couldn't speak. I don't know that to be fact. I'm just, you know, going, thinking that way. But Elizabeth knew when she asked without hesitation that his name would be John. Of course, they could not let tradition interfere with God's plan. So the people around her reminded Elizabeth that their son's name usually is the father's. But they didn't know what John or what uh, Zechariah had been told by the angel. So looking to his father, now remember he still couldn't speak, he motioned for a tablet, as I said, to write on. And he wrote down his son's name as the angel had instructed him. And the Hebrew transition of the word, or translation of the word is, Yahweh has been gracious, John. That's the name. God's grace preparing for his Messiah. Graciousness. Each one of our lives, we can look at and see how God has been gracious. Even in the midst of turmoil, we can see God's grace. We lose sight of that sometimes because looking at Bob and Noby's world compared to our world, big difference, right? It's a reality check. But God's grace is sufficient for them where they are as it is for us. There's no boundary. And finally, in the last set of verses, we have the joyous celebration, which in some Bibles is titled Zachariah's Song. And at the moment, Zechariah, well, I forgot to tell you, his translation of his word is, or his name is, Yahweh remembers. God didn't forget what he told Zechariah. But then, as he wrote down the name, all of a sudden he was able to speak. And what were the first words out of his mouth? Blessings. Blessing God for fulfilling that promise. And being filled with the Holy Spirit in verses 67 through 79 would be his declaration, his joyous celebration of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and Malachi's prophecy. This is such a rich history in this man named John the Baptist. This obscure figure was one of the most important parts of the proclamation of the true Messiah. And he was specifically chosen before he was even born. He was given a particular mission to prepare the way and his name was precisely chosen to express God's grace. As we look forward into chapter 3, we see the mission of the Baptist unfold. And I know Steve will get there eventually, so I'm just going to give some highlights. So from the beginning, he wanted to make sure that he was never to be the focus. He always pointed to the one coming. He didn't hold back his boldness, which eventually we know cost him his life. But he would never want to be exalted other than as a servant of his Lord. His name, John, God's gracious gift, is the announcement of the greatest gift ever given by God. When we celebrate communion, that's the gift. That's what John was preparing. His son, his sacrifice. There are several lessons we can learn from the life of John the Baptist. One lesson is that he wholeheartedly believed in Christ. And that's possible for all of us. John knew that the Messiah was coming. He believed with his whole heart and spent his days preparing that way for that coming. 
path, but the road was not easy, was it? Daily he faced doubters, mockers, who did not share his excitement for the coming Messiah. Under hard questioning from the Pharisees, John shared his disbelief. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John believed in the Christ and his gift, great gift of faith kept him steadfast, kept him on course until the time was right. And guess what? That time was when he saw Jesus approach. And what does he declare? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As believers, we can all have that steadfast faith. We should have that steadfast faith. In Matthew 11, 2 through 6, we know the story of John being in prison. And he asks about, is this the one? And he certainly seemed to have some doubts. But a messenger was sent out to Jesus in an effort to find the truth. And as Christians, we will have our faith put to the test. We will either falter in our faith, like John, at moments, or cling to Christ. Seek his truth, his promises, stand firm, even through difficult times. John's life is an example to us of the seriousness with which we are to approach our Christian life and our call to ministry. John lived his life to introduce others to Christ. He was focused on his mission. John also knew the importance of repentance of one's sins in order to live a holy and righteous life. And as a servant of God, he also was unafraid to speak the truth, even when it meant calling out such people as Herod and the Pharisees for their sinful behaviors. And we all know what that got him. We can follow John's example of faithful and obedient trust in God as we live and proclaim his truth in whatever life circumstances we find ourselves in. In that phrase there, truly I tell you, among these born of women, there was none risen, anyone greater than John the Baptist. The greatness that Jesus is referring to concerning John has to do with John's unique position in history. Not with any special talent, holiness, personal merit. In fact, immediately after stating that John is the greatest among those born of women, Jesus says this, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. One reason that Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest was that John held the honor of being chosen by God as the forerunner to proclaim the Messiah's coming. A ministry that was predicted back again in Isaiah and Malachi. After Jesus came, John introduced him as the Lamb of God. It was this introduction that accredited Jesus before the Jewish crowds and leaders, some of whom believed on Jesus, but many of them did not. In this room, there are those who will believe, and there are those who won't believe. This just didn't happen then, it's happening now. My greatest encouragement to you is what are you waiting for? Look around us. Look at the turmoil that our world is in. Look at what we're observing in Israel. Do you think that this little country, so small, is such a nuisance to everything around it. Why? Because it's God's chosen people. Guess what? So are we. Those of us who are in Christ are God's chosen people. Do you think that it's going to stop in Israel? No. It's going to continue even here. And you better be prepared. John was also great because he preached with the power of Elijah. He was also the greatest because God chose him to break the 400 years of silence. He was one of those who was predicted and prophesied way before it even happened. 
And he met Christ face to face. That's an amazing thing. One of the first. The baptism of John was insufficient, as I said, and incomplete for salvation. God's grace and love was sent to provide the payment we could not pay and for the penalty we so completely deserved. As we are sent each day into this world, may we be as John, proclaiming this message that he lived and died for. But we too are voices that are crying in the wilderness. The wilderness of blind eyes, the wilderness of deaf ears, and the wilderness of hardened hearts. As we prepare for our communion time, let us be reminded of why we take part in this particular ordinance. Because Jesus himself told us to do this in remembrance of his sacrifice on our behalf. And as John stated, as I read before, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray, Father, that if there are any here who have not put their trust in you, Lord, that this would be the day of their salvation. But more than that, Lord, I pray that there are those who are not sure may, may have made a commitment one day, but they see themselves falling away. They see themselves that not truly fully committed. Those are the ones, Lord, I call. I pray, Father, that you would quicken their hearts, open their eyes, let them see their need for you in their life. And Father, as John prepared the way, may we prepare our hearts for this communion time around this table as believers and followers of Christ, that you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.